0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. Welcome to it. It is twenty-five to ten, and Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, with you. Hey, Chris. Morning, morning. Ho- hopefully, you had a wonderful week. So we know that our week ends amazingly well when we have to hear you. <laughs> now, yeah, some of those questions I see people already calling in. We will be taking those calls. Um, it says, yeah, I have an old-fashioned ice cream maker. It uses um, that is cooled using crushed ice and coarse salt. Why is the salt needed?
1: These old-fashioned ice cream makers are how people back a uh, 100-plus years ago, before refrigeration and freezers existed, made ice cream. The way it works, just for those not in the know, is you take a layer of salt, you add some crushed ice, you add some more salt, you add some more crushed ice, you add some more salt and you make an ice and salt sandwich. Now, if you make a bowl of that and you stick a thermometer in it, the temperature will fall to about minus 20 degrees C. If you have the equivalent amount of ice without the salt in a bowl next door and stick a thermometer in that, the temperature will drift around somewhere between 0 and minus 4. Why the difference? The reason is that when you put salt on ice, the ice is in what we call a dynamic equilibrium with the air around it. There are molecules of water which are constantly trying to leave the ice Because by chance, the energy which is randomly in the ice occasionally all gets distributed into one little bit of the ice and one molecule of water has enough energy to break the bonds holding it onto the molecules next door and it escapes. Now if it escapes and takes the energy with it away from the ice, the ice has lost energy so it must get cooler. But normally what's happening is that that water that was lost comes back and rejoins the ice so it gives the energy back so it's in a state of dynamic equilibrium the temperature doesn't change if you put salt there the particles of salt for want of a better phrase stop the water molecules that exit finding their way back onto the ice crystal so it becomes a one-way street energy is lost and not given back so the temperature goes a lot lower and That's why it gets to about minus 20 degrees C. And you'll end up with liquid water, but at minus 20. And by driving the equilibrium in favour of that lowering of temperature, you get within the regime you need to actually freeze your ice cream and make delicious ice cream.
0: Fascinating stuff. Now, uh, Paul in Durbanville. Good morning, sir. Yeah, hi. Um,
1: The force of gravity and the force of magnetism, are they the same or are they similar? And if they are, then... Can we manufacture a large enough electromagnet
0: on the planet's surface to affect the moon's orbit?
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Hi, Paul. The answer is that they're they're different uh, phenomena, and we don't know uh, what gravity is. We have an idea as to how it works, and we know that it's in some way intrinsically bound up with mass. So if you have a massive object, then it distorts Einstein's notion of space-time the fabric of space in such a way that things are attracted to you but exactly why that happens and the key question also why is gravity such a weak force in other words gravity occurs over enormously long distance but it falls off very rapidly obeys an inverse square law so if you double the distance so you go from one to two meters away from the source of the gravity then you don't get a halving you get 1 over 2 squared, which is a quarter of the amount of gravity at double the distance, and so it falls off very rapidly. And we d- we don't understand why gravity works like that, but if gravity wasn't weak like that, the universe wouldn't work. Magnetism is not the same thing. The magnetic force, the electromagnetic force, is quite a different phenomenon. The Earth does have both gravity and a gravitational acceleration towards its centre and a magnetic effect because in the centre of the Earth is a pool of molten iron which is moving and by some technique and phenomenon that we don't properly understand, this creates an effect called a geodynamo and this molten moving iron, because it's moving charges around, seems to create... An effect equivalent to a very large bar magnet inside the Earth, and this creates the field lines which extend out from the poles of the Earth and out into space and fend off the solar wind and other cosmic radiation, which would otherwise cook us on the Earth's surface and and we'd all be obliterated. And um, you can have mass and not have a magnetic effect because if you look at Mars, for example, Mars has cooled down, lost its magnetic field. But it certainly has a gravitation effect. It's got two moons which are faithfully in orbit, Phobos and Deimos going around Mars. So the two do have the effect of accelerating objects. They do have some similarities but they are actually completely different entities. Could we make a magnet that would actually be equivalent to being able to fend off the power of the Earth's gravity? No, I think that that would actually require so much energy you'd need a planet-sized source to do it. So I don't think it's feasible.
0: Well, there we go. Phobos and d oh, They sound like two Hollywood rappers. Um, let's go to Jack in Somerset West. Hello, Jack. Hi, Chris. Hi, guys. Uh, something that's always puzzled me, um, we look at stars and we say, all right, those stars are 100 light years away or a million light years away. So we, what we've seen is like 100 or a million years old. How do we know that they're still there and obviously they won't be in the same position where they are now? where we see them.
1: Thanks for that question, Jack. True on many counts. The stars that we mostly look at are stars which are in our galaxy. That's the Milky Way. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light-years across. In other words, if I shone a laser beam from here... On at one outer edge of the galaxy, it would be seen on the opposite side of the galaxy 100,000 years later. So light travelling at the speed of light takes 100,000 years to get across the, the galaxy. Distant galaxies, which you can also see in the night sky, as smudges. Uh, historically, people referred to these as nebulae because they, they weren't really sure what they were. It was only later they realised that these distant galaxies themselves are big aggregations of stars. They're much further away. They're, they're millions to billions of light years away. So the, the universe is truly enormous, When we're looking at this distant starlight, you're quite right, though. Some of those stars, they're not going to be there anymore because the time it has taken the light to get from those distant stars across this vast distance to reach us so we can see it, the star that made that light may not exist anymore by the time the light gets to us. It's also true that everything in the universe is in motion and in the same way that the Earth is going around the Sun... The sun is going around our galaxy and our galaxy is moving as part of a big cluster of galaxies which are also in motion. So everything in the universe is in motion. That's absolutely true. So if you were to wait millions of years and then go to where you thought a star was, it wouldn't be there. That is absolutely true.
0: Now, another question here. When we were younger, we were told to add salt to boiling water when boiling eggs as it would make it cook faster. Is this true Uh, Does the salt make the water boil at a higher temperature?
1: In the same way as we were saying at the beginning of the programme, if I add salt to ice, what does it do? It lowers the melting point. In other words, it makes the water freeze at a lower temperature. Adding any impurity to any other substance also escalates the boiling point. So if you add salt to water yes, it will boil at a slightly higher temperature. To be honest, though, it's, an, it's an, a myth that it will actually affect the temperature at which the water boils mm. to an appreciable amount. It will push it up by a few degrees probably i don't think it's more than a few degrees and that is not going to make really very much difference at all to the cooking time for your food because relative to the hundred degrees the water's already boiling at it's going to make virtually no difference to the cooking time so yes it will change the boiling point that's absolutely true no it probably is not going to make very much difference at all to how long it takes your pasta or your your egg to cook but it will if you're cooking pasta for example affect the flavor so salt does have a role it can affect the flavour of the food, but it probably is not going to be much of a difference to the cooking time. You're with Cape Talk. And you're also
0: joined by the naked scientist, Dr Chris Smith, answering all your questions. And the next question, Chris, is why do lights appear to twinkle from a distance?
1: The reason for this is because, and I presume we're talking about lights coming through the atmosphere from, say, a distant star. Um, The reason that lights twinkle is because the atmosphere, when light comes through it, changes the speed of the light. Everyone thinks that light has a constant speed, but actually this is not true. Light has a constant speed at the medium that it is travelling through. So a piece of glass, for example, will have light travelling through it at a certain speed. Air will have light travelling through it at a different speed. When, one goes, when light goes from one to the other, it changes that speed. And when the speed changes, it makes the light beam bend a bit. So why should the air have light travelling through, dif- through it at different speeds? Yep. The reason is that different patches of the atmosphere have different densities. There are masses or patches of warm air and cold air. And this is because thermals are carrying warm air aloft. And so as light comes through the atmosphere, it sees, in inverted commas, bits of the air which are thinner and bits of the air which are thicker. This is directly analogous to the light going from air into glass and back into air again. So as it comes through the atmosphere, the light ray speeds up and slows down many times, and this causes it to wiggle or bend on its course many times. When your eye sees that ray arriving, it presumes that the object that made the ray, because your brain has evolved to think that light comes in straight lines, the object that made it must be moving. So you see apparent movement in the distance from the object that you're seeing that's producing the light, and you assume the star is wiggling around, and that's the twinkling effect that we see.
0: Well, could uh, that explanation be used for city lights on the horizon, for example, when they shimmer?
1: It absolutely can, and you can even do this in your kitchen. If you make toast in the morning, turn on the toaster pop some bread in there so you don't waste the electricity, look at the wall behind the toaster and you'll see a wiggly pattern coming up above the hot vents where the hot air is coming out of the toaster. This is exactly the same phenomenon. The hot air is less dense than the cold air either side of the toaster, so light bouncing Ah. off the wall and coming towards you through that air is speeding up and slowing down, wiggling, and you see the wall as wiggling.
0: Let's listen to yet another question for the naked scientist, Dr Chris Smith.
1: Hey this is for the Naked Scientist, I just installed some air conditioners at my house and uh, I'd really like to know how do they work? I really do not understand how it can blow cold air and hot air and yeah if I
0: could get an explanation for that that'd be great thanks. Cold air and hot air. I mean, politicians are very good at that, but aircons, how do they work?
1: Um... Brilliant line. The answer to this one is that an aircon is doing exactly the same thing as the fridge in your kitchen and your freezer is doing. Basically, uh, this is the simplest explanation. You take a refrigerant fluid, and there are a whole range of those. You compress them very hard using a pump. When you squeeze a fluid very hard, you're doing work against the fluid. If you do work against something, you're giving it energy. So if you give the fluid energy, its temperature goes up. So the fluid initially gets really hot. You run that hot fluid through a system to get rid of the extra heat, so it chucks the heat away into the room. And then you push the fluid through a very tiny hole so it expands rapidly on the other side of that hole. When a gas expands, it's doing work against the, the pressure or the atmosphere in the thing it's expanding into. And if it's doing work, it's losing energy. So on the other side of that hole, your expanding fluid plummets in temperature. And the clever thing about a fridge or an aircon unit is that you make the hot side in one place and the cold side in another place. And so you've effectively separated hot and cold. And then by blowing air in the right direction through the unit, you can either collect the heat or you collect the cold, as it were. And so an aircon unit and a fridge are basically electrical pumps that use a lot less energy to pump thermal energy. So you can get heating or cooling to the equivalent of about three or four kilowatt and you only need to use about one kilowatt of electricity to push that heat backwards and forwards in that way. So in your aircon unit, you push air over the cold element to pull the cold, to, to basically push the cold air into the room. Or if you reverse the cycle and you use your aircon unit in the wintertime to warm your room up, you're just doing the opposite. You push the air over the hot bit and throw away the cold bit. Uh, here's an interesting one. Um, good morning. When I put an earbud in my ear,
0: I get a tickle in my throat. And then I have to cough. Why does this happen? And that's from
1: Colleen in Indiprava. Same thing happens, Colleen, when people put uh, various other things in their ears. There is Arnold's nerve in your ear. And a tiny fraction of the population, 0.9% on I think one side, 2.5% on both sides, get this effect that when you ram something into your ear, it produces a cough reflex. And we don't know exactly why this happens, but it's probably a bit of miswiring in the nervous system. But it's called, as I say, Arnold's nerve, and you can stimulate it with objects inserted such as an, such as an earbud or um, Q-tip to clean an ear. And when you stimulate it, it produces the same reflex that irritation to your throat does to produce a cough. And as I say, you're, you're down in about the 2% of the population who have this.
0: Interesting question here. Hi Chris, um, can you explain why water disassociates at 42.7 kilohertz um, and can this be done at home to extract hydrogen?
1: I'm not sure I understand the question completely. I think this is something I don't know about so I'm going to take a rain check okay. if rain check is the right word to use in the water question and no, I, will, I will, I will find problem. out what the basis of that is and come back to you next week. Sorry I can't do that one.
0: No, not a problem at all. And um, that's the 0.0000001%. That's the now, uh, why does my microwave, when it's on, interfere with my Wi-Fi and my Bluetooth, asks another question.
1: The reason for this is that the frequency at which a microwave works is about 2.45 gigahertz. In other words, it's producing 2.45 billion light waves a second. This is the same frequency of microwaves that is used by... Household Wi Fi, for example. Now, a microwave oven should be screened so that the box, the metal box, contains and soaks up all the microwaves. There should not be appreciable leakage from your microwave oven into your room. They're supposed to screen the microwaves out. If that is happening, I'd get your microwave check because that sounds a bit dodgy to me. But it's possible that your Wi Fi router signal is a bit weak. In other words, you might have a dead spot where where you're trying to receive the signal and that when you turn your microwave oven on, even a tiny amount of microwave leakage from the oven is enough to overwhelm the signal from the router at that particular position. That could be what it is. But basically because the two are using the same regime, the same frequency of radiation to send signals, it's a bit like you trying to listen to uh, Cape Talk on headphones and then going to a nightclub. The music that's being played is so loud, using all the same frequencies, that it overwhelms the speech, and you can't understand.
0: And then, uh, well, I and mean, the other thing is, you could also remove the the router out of the microwave. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I hadn't thought um, of that. That's a very good point. I should, why here. I should have said, why are you using your Wi-Fi in your microwave? <laughs> <laughs> and I then another one for you, Chris. <laughs>
0: How do you remagnetize the magnets in a bathroom cabinet
1: door? Oh, I think I'd just go and buy new magnets to be honest. Magnets yeah. <laughs> do do demagnetize with time because every time you open and close the door, you give the metal a bit of a shock. And when you give the metal a bit of a shock, you can knock off kilter the alignment of all of these little dipoles because if you zoomed in with a really powerful microscope on a piece of iron which has been magnetized, you would see that the Atoms uh, have what we call a spin state. This is where the you can think of this in a very simplified way as the electrons are all whizzing around the atom, all in lockstep, in one direction. And when we magnetise something, instead of the directions all being random through the piece of material, they all line up, all these dipoles line up, and that produces the magnetic field. If you shock a piece of metal or drop a magnet, some of them will be knocked off kilter, and if they're not all pointing in the same direction, they're not contributing to the creation of the magnetic field. So opening and closing the door a lot is going to progressively, because it's producing a little tap to the magnet, it will slowly demagnetize the magnet. Very difficult to remagnetize that in situ to an appreciable degree. I would suggest getting either a new bathroom cabinet or a new magnet. Mm.
0: A lot less effort. Um, and then, Chris, can you please tell us the progress on the
1: possibility of a photon engine for space travel? I think what they're referring to is that because light has momentum, you can give things a push with light. And there is something called the Yarkovsky-O'Keefe-Radzievsky-Padak effect, or YORP for short. And this is where when light falls on, for instance, a large asteroid, it can push the asteroid along. And we have pretty good evidence, for example, that the YORP effect accounted for why asteroids got dislodged from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter and one of them came and hit the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. So we know that light because it has momentum when it hits a surface can give things a push and people are using solar sail technology where you put a a big reflective surface up in space and you capture a lot of light and as the photons of light hit it they deposit their momentum, their energy and that gives your object a push along. But whether or not you could actually accelerate a, a, a spacecraft in this way Mm, I don't think that that's going to work and we're, we're certainly still in the, in the in the realms of needing to actually accelerate physical particles. We've got smart engines, uh, iron drive engines for example which mm. accelerate electrically charged ions, xenon as a big heavy ions usually used and there was a yes. rocket called Smart One that did this but I don't think anyone's doing it with light yet. Okay
0: now, <laughs> this one reads, apologies up front, um, but why is it that without some form of preview uh, we don't find our own flatulence to be as offensive as those of others.
1: Does your nose know? Well, I think there's two aspects to this. One is that we are, or we have evolved to be repelled by things that might harm our health, and a really nasty smell could. Be a signal of things that could infect you with really rotten things and could make you unwell. So you're therefore repelled by those sorts of smells. If you make the smell, automatically you know that it's you can't infect yourself with something you haven't already got, therefore it's not going to be a threat to you. One other theory I did have is that it could be that because all those nasty smells are already stewing inside you, some of them are going in your bloodstream at low concentration up through your olfactory system anyway, and they're slowly habituating your nose to those smells anyway. So the fire doesn't oh, well. smell as bad to you as it does to somebody else because you're already used to it a bit.
0: I'm so glad you said fart and not flatulence. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> you must have a wonderful weekend. Great chatting to you. Looking forward to next week. This is, of course, Dr Chris Smith, uh, the Naked Scientist.